We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. Given that I'm a marital therapist and that relationships can be the cornerstone of a meaningful life, it's not surprising that I look at marriage and long-term partnerships so often on this podcast. One of the topics I circle around over and over again in my therapy office is, should I stay or should I go? The question comes up in many different forms. How do I balance my needs and the needs of the kids? What do I do if my partner is not open to changing? When do I know enough is enough? All great questions, and I'm looking forward to a deep dive into them today. My witness is Linda Hirschman, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and an approved supervisor in Pennsylvania, USA. She's also the author of The Grey Divorce, Everything You Need to Know About Later Life Breakups. One of the experts she quotes is yours truly. She's introduced me to two new ideas, being divorce curious and discernment counselling. But first, how did you get interested in the topic of grey divorce? Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you so much for having me on as a guest. And it's a pleasure to speak with you again. It's been a few years. I got interested, like so many things these days, I was researching something else on the internet for an article I was writing about alternatives to litigated divorce. And in the process, the term gray divorce came up. And I got very curious about that. And as I started researching gray divorce, I thought about my caseload, particularly my discernment counseling caseload, which we we'll talk about later. And I started to realize how many of the couples who were coming in and deciding not to continue with their marriage were age 50 and over. And I'm well over 50, so it's not something that should have been a shock to me. But I started thinking, okay, what are the unique issues that people over 50 have that are different from people who are under 50 who are going through divorce? And I started immersing myself in that literature. I received an invitation to submit a proposal to present at the International Family Therapy Association World Congress in Aberdeen, Scotland in 2019. And I thought, what could I present on that would have international appeal? And I wondered, is gray divorce something that's unique to the United States or is it happening all over? And what I found out is it is a thing all over the world wherever divorce is legal. In fact, in the UK, they tend not to talk about it as gray divorce they call it silver splitting or sometimes diamond divorce. And I love the Japanese version of this. Obviously, we're not <laughs> going to say the Japanese bit, but let's just have the Japanese version translated for us. Yes, I can't actually say it in Japanese, but in the Japanese culture, men 
typically are very involved with their careers throughout their whole lives, generally at the expense of their families and of developing hobbies and interests outside of work. And when they retire, suddenly they're home in the house, not knowing what to do, and they call it wet leaves under feet syndrome. (laughs) which refers to the men being under the wife's feet, like wet leaves they can't get off their feet. And there is also an actual syndrome in the Japanese mental health world that women are diagnosed with when their husbands retire and stay home. The women develop a lot of physical and somatic symptoms as well. And it's a thing. And why do you think we've been so slow to realise that this is a particular problem? Because, as you say, just looking at it from our practice, because your practice is possibly like mine used to be, though actually since moving to Berlin, my clients have all dropped down in age. So I'm now seeing people in their 30s rather than their 50s. But why didn't we spot this, do you think? That's an interesting question. And... It's one that I haven't been asked before. If I'm speculating, what I would say is that we are very conscious of the impact of divorce on younger families because of the concerns for the younger children. But when older couples get divorced, their adult children, and there's an acronym for it, ACODS, Adult Children of Divorce, are expected to be old enough to understand and absorb their losses and move on, which is not the case. And I don't know if you'll be asking me about that, but I do have a chapter in the book about the unique challenges of adult children of divorce. But we don't recognize it as a loss, and so we don't pay as much attention to what is the impact on the kids. And of course, you're not dealing with custody issues you're not dealing with a lot of the logistics of co-parenting that you do with younger kids. And so there's just this assumption that everybody sucks it up and moves on. And often, actually, it ends up in our offices. It is actually something I see an awful lot. The impact of the parents' divorce ricocheting down into the generation below and actually destabilizing their children's marriage. Is that what you see too? It can destabilize the children's marriages. More often, what happens is that the adult children develop trust issues, especially when it's a low-conflict divorce. If you grew up in a house where your parents functioned well together, they were great transactionally, they were like best friends, it comes as a shock when all of a sudden you're 20, 25, 30, 40 years old, and your parents split up. So that is one of the factors. Another factor is that parents tend to triangulate older children. They tend to think that, well, she's old enough to understand. So I can tell her all the rotten things her father did to me, or he is old enough to see what a jerk his mother has been. And so they get put in the middle of that. There are also very serious financial repercussions. Oftentimes, children grow up hearing their parents say, we're going to pay for a 
beautiful wedding for you, or we're going to pay for you to go to college or grad school, or we're going to give you a deposit on a house. Suddenly the parents are divorcing and they're saying, sorry, we had to split the assets. We don't have the money to provide for you in the way we told you. And so it can really destabilize financially. And then there are also situations where the grandparents are an important part of childcare. Now suddenly mom is saying, I never worked a day in my life, but now I have to find a job and sorry, I can't take care of the kids anymore. Dad is saying, yeah, I was going to retire and help you out with the kids, but I can't do it now. And then suddenly they become step parents and uh, that can create all sorts of conflicts and problems too that weren't there beforehand. So you're right, it's a huge problem. Let's focus on this term divorce curious, because I think that's a really good term. So tell me what divorce curious means. It's simply starting to ask yourself the question, do I want a divorce? And maybe going further and getting information, what would that look like? Talking to other people about it, talking with an attorney, consulting with an attorney, talking with a financial planner. I love the term divorce curious because what often I tend to hear is, you know, everything's fine, then I want a divorce. And they don't actually stop in that divorce curious place. And often they speak to their partners before they've really thought it through. So if you are divorce curious, who should you speak to? And how do you find out if this is right for you or not? Ideally, your spouse would be the best person to speak with first. Unfortunately, that's not generally the way it goes. But if you are divorce curious, maybe one thing you might want to do is go to a therapist and start to explore, am I just bored or is there something really significantly wrong with this marriage? Or it could also be a personal problem. I'm actually fed up with life in general, and my relationship is just one element of that. And it's an easier one to sort out. You think, oh, well, I'll just get rid of my wife and I'll feel better, or just get rid of my husband and I'll feel better. But actually, if there's some deep childhood material that needs to be worked through, it might be worth looking at that first. Absolutely. And I was going to go there as well. When I'm working with couples, I am starting from the premise that relationships function in patterns. Each person brings their own dynamic, their own unhealthy dynamic into the dysfunctional patterns. Each person is responsible for working on their own part of the dysfunction in the pattern. And so maybe your partner won't go to couples counseling, or maybe you're not sure yet whether you want to make that commitment but it's still worthwhile to explore for yourself, what am I bringing into this that I need to work on? Because history repeats itself. And if you don't work on it before this divorce, then you're going to be running into the same dynamics the next time around. I don't know if you find this. I think we have a rather starry-eyed idea of divorce. We think it's going to be a relationship reset. I hear people saying, well, you know, he'll take more of his share of the kids because he's going to have them that whole weekend. And so therefore he's going to be doing more. Oh, she can't complain about this anymore because our relationship will be over. We won't argue anymore. No, you'll just argue on the telephone rather than the kitchen together. It's sort of seen as a magic solution sometimes. What do you think? 
Well, keep in mind that that tends to be more true for younger people getting divorced than people over 50. Once you're over 50 and your kids are grown, yes, you will always have interactions with your ex, but they can be few and far between. You're not talking about splitting childcare and who is going to pick the kids up because we both have to go to work. So it's a little bit different in that sense. But yes, some people, especially when you have a marriage that you've just grown apart or was never a good marriage to begin with, you can look at it. This is one of the upsides of great divorce, that it does present the opportunity to find a more fulfilling relationship or even create a more fulfilling relationship with yourself. In gray divorce, though, the number one fear for both men and women is loneliness and who will take care of me. So there are questions that we ask ourselves when we're in our 50s, 60s, and 70s that younger people are not asking, like, if I get divorced, what if I get sick next year? So what is discernment counselling then? Discernment counselling is a brief protocol that was developed by Dr. William Doherty, who I don't know if he is well known in Europe, but he is at this point one of the leaders in the field of family therapy in the United States. And it is typically one to five sessions and it is designed for couples Usually when one partner is leaning out and does not know if they even want to do marriage counseling or if they want to get divorced, and one person is leaning in and wants to save the marriage. The one piece that was always missing for me in my training is what do I do when I have those couples who come into my office and either it's very obvious because one person says it or they act it that they are not committed to the marriage counseling and they don't even know if they want to be there. Or sometimes, because I've been doing this for a long time, my spidey sense tells me there's something else going on in the background that they're not talking about in marriage counseling that is interfering with couples counseling. So. When you come to marriage counseling and one person is not even sure if they want to be there, they don't have motivation to change. And as I said earlier, in order for relationships to be effective, each person has to be willing to look at their own part and do their own work. And so in discernment counseling, most of the work is done with each person individually. They come in together. And there are a couple of times during the session that they're brought together. But the work for the leaning out person is looking at three paths. Do I stay the course and do nothing right now? But when we talk about staying the course and doing nothing, it's not a passive procedure. It's do I wait until the end of the school year or do I wait until we're in financially better shape because my partner is getting a new job? Or do I let my partner know this is what I need to see from them? And I wait to see if they follow through on that. So stay the course is path one. The second path is move towards separation and divorce. The third path is commit to intensive marriage counseling, 
with divorce off the table for a period of time to see if the relationship can be improved. And so with the leaning out partner, we are exploring those questions, hopefully in different ways than they've looked at before. And also I'm leaning on them to look at what their part was for the marriage to get to that point. With the leaning in partner, of course, they have agency in the decision. And sometimes during the discernment process, they will decide, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore. And that, of course, is the right. But most of the work with them is to hold on to themselves during the discernment process, to show up as their best selves, to not distance, to not pursue while the discernment is going on. And discernment counseling is finished when a decision is made. You say that um, you see them separately. Um, Is that you divide the one-hour session up for half and half, or do you see one one week and one the next week? How do you divide the time up? Actually, in discernment counseling, the sessions are two hours. And in the first session, I bring them both in together. At first, there are four specific questions I ask And this is not questions I made up. This is part of Bill Doherty's discernment protocol. Questions I ask to help me understand where the work is in the discernment counseling. Then I generally work with the leaning out person first and spend about 45-ish minutes with them. And at the end of the time, they are asked to come up with a statement. And the statement generally is something like, I haven't made a decision, but there are some things that came up that I'd like to think about. I'd like to come back for another discernment session, or it could be I've made a decision. Here's what my decision is, or it could be in order to consider marriage counseling. Here's what I need to see. They don't Mm -hmm. discuss it. We're not working on communication. We're not working on improving the relationship. They drop their statement. Then I work with the leaning in partner. And it's the same thing. I spend about 45 minutes or so with them. They have a statement at the end. I bring them back together. They give their statement. And then we decide, are you scheduling another discernment session or do you know where you're going from here? It sounds really good. I'm going to have to look and see if that's offered in the UK and in Europe, but that's quite easy to find in the US, is it? Or is it still quite difficult to find? Generally, no, because it's like this great widget that nobody knows has been invented. The people in this area do because I am very connected with many, many therapists in the area who will send couples to me for discernment counseling. I also am very active in a Philadelphia area healthy divorce professionals group. It's a group of family law attorneys, marriage and family therapists, divorce coaches, people who are committed to keeping the divorce process as healthy and financially sound for everybody as possible. And so I've done a lot of networking to make it known, but in all of Pennsylvania, there are only a handful of discernment counselors. And of that handful, only a small percentage of us are certified in discernment counseling. I have been doing it the longest and have done more than anybody else. So 
people in the Pennsylvania area generally end up with me if they're looking for it. <laughs> anyway, we'll put um, some links and information in the show notes if people either want to find out how they can study that because they're a therapist or because they're looking for a therapist that has done it. So I think we're beginning to say that grey divorce is different from regular divorce. So let's look at the advantages. You know, if you're sitting there and you're divorce curious and you're 50 plus, what are the advantages of getting a divorce in your experience? Well, the biggest advantage is no longer staying in a marriage that does not work for you. In terms of talking about the advantages, we might want to talk for a moment about why the uptick in gray divorce. The number one reason, and just to throw out some statistics in the United States, one out of four couples over age 50, their marriages are ending in divorce now. In 1990, one out of 10 marriages of couples over 50 ended in divorce. Two-thirds of gray divorces, and this is just not in the United States, this is pretty consistent everywhere, about two-thirds of gray divorces are initiated by women. The main reason is because they can. Until fairly recently, women weren't able to support themselves financially. Until the 1970s in the United States, they couldn't get mortgages in their own name. They couldn't get credit cards in their own name. So it was very, very hard to leave a bad marriage. With women being more financially independent, they don't have to stay in marriages that either they've outgrown or that have been abusive, where there's addiction, infidelity, other issues that you find in relationships. So an advantage is not being forced to stay in a marriage that doesn't work anymore. Another reason for the uptick in gray divorce is the advent of no-fault divorce. It used to be in the United States when you wanted to get a divorce, there were basically seven grounds that were approved for divorce and somebody had to be the villain in the story. And it could get really ugly and painful, especially when both people wanted the divorce and you would have to go to court and testify that your husband did this or your wife did this. And it was a very ugly, painful thing. And so with no-fault divorce being legal in all 50 states, we have eliminated that issue of somebody having to be the bad person. And also, most divorces are not litigated anymore in the United States. And so it is financially easier to get divorced. And you don't have the social stigma. Another main reason for the uptick in gray divorce is people live a lot longer. It used to be when you turned 65, you would get your watch from the company. And if you were lucky, you had another seven years and that was it. Now, if you're lucky enough to be able to retire at 65, you might have 20, 25 really healthy, productive years left. And people are thinking to themselves, do I really want to spend another 20, 25, 30 years with this person. And sometimes it's not because things are hostile or bad. It's that people grow and change over the years. And oftentimes people grow and change in different directions. So this gray divorce gives you an opportunity to be 
more true to who you are now and not have to be that same person as when you were 30. And what are the disadvantages do you find of grey divorce? Well, as I said, for both men and women, the big fear is of loneliness and who will take care of me. For women specifically, there is still a big fear of finances. And it's still true that after divorce, men come out financially better than they were during the marriage and women come out financially worse. So it's a legitimate fear if you are not a fully self-supporting woman. For men, the next fear is what will happen to my relationship with their adult children? And there is very good reason for that because when couples divorce later in life, we talked earlier about adult children and loyalty issues. Oftentimes, children seem to be more loyal to the mothers because first of all, the mothers were there more when they were growing up. Also, because oftentimes the mothers are more dependent for help with things. They may never have paid bills by themselves. They may not be computer literate. They might not be able to hang pictures. So the children show up for the mothers more because typically they tend to need more help. And they probably also cook a great Sunday lunch as well. (laughs) Could be. Another factor is Men tend to remarry much sooner, and statistically, they do tend to marry women who are about 10 years younger. Oftentimes, the women will come in with younger children who are still in the home, and there is a concept called, it's really a biological concept, called serial fathering, where men are more wired to the family that they are in at the time. And so they tend to develop a lot of loyalty to the stepchildren or their new wives might require, insist that they show preference and loyalty. And this creates a lot of conflict with their adult children. And of course, most older men are in a situation when they're retiring that they can devote more time to their stepchildren. They can go to their games. They can drive them places. They can do more activities with them because they're not working now or they're working part-time. And the adult children from the first marriage are, are watching this and saying, well, you never did any of this with me. And so it creates a lot of conflict between the fathers and the adult children. Yeah, I can feel the jealousy there, and it sounds really difficult. How do you help in a situation like that? Ideally, I would get as many people as I could in the room for family therapy. Well, it really starts with the biological parents. If they can work together to assure their children that they are okay with this and that they want their adult children to have a good relationship with a step parent and also to develop relationships with any step siblings. Of course, that's not the real world most of the time. Actually, in a future edition, I'm going to be talking to Julia Samuels about family therapy. So that's another edition of the podcast to listen out for. So, 
You have a chapter that you describe in your book as the modern alternatives to divorce. What are the modern alternatives to divorce? I will tread a little bit carefully here because we're talking about alternatives to litigated divorce. I am not a lawyer, nor do I play one on podcasts, so I cannot give legal advice. I just happen to hang around with a lot of collaborative family law attorneys, and so I'm pretty well versed on what they would be recommending for people. As I said, in the United States, very few divorces get litigated anymore. In fact, I think in Pennsylvania, the statistic is something like 4% of divorces go to court. And just like with mental health, where we have levels of care, with divorce, there are sort of levels with it. And so the least, I'm using mental health terms here, which is not quite accurate, but I'll go with it. The least restrictive, as it were, would be be mediated divorce. And that is when you've got two people who can agree on almost everything in the divorce process. They do most of the planning themselves on how they're separating things, how they're dividing assets. They take it to a trained mediator who will look over everything to make sure it's sound. Now, in mediated divorce, a good mediator will recommend each person have their own attorney to look over it to make sure nothing is really off there. But it's more or less a do-it-yourself divorce with some assistance. I've had several couples who have done it and have said it was the easiest, least painful process that could have happened. Couples who do well in mediated divorce are ones who typically have, they're the best friend kind of couples where they have really good relationships. They love and care for each other. They do well transactionally. They just are not in love like husband and wife or like spouses anymore. The next level would be collaborative divorce. In a collaborative divorce, you have attorneys, each person has an attorney assigned, but the attorneys are working together in the best interest of the family. They're not adversaries. In fact, couples have to sign a contract stating they are aware that if they go to court, the lawyers will bow out. They will not represent them and they have to start the process all over again. And so in collaborative divorce, each person has an attorney assigned to them. And most collaborative family law attorneys also have ancillary support people they can bring in. They can bring in a family therapist to work through some sticky issues. They can bring in financial planners. They can bring in real estate people, whomever, as ancillaries to support the process. What are the kind of people typically who benefit from the collaborative approach? People who benefit from the collaborative approach are people who can't agree on a lot of things on their own, but they want to come to agreement. They're motivated to come to an agreement on their own. I think it's probably a little more helpful to say who doesn't benefit. 
neither collaborative divorce nor mediation is an appropriate process where there is a likelihood that one partner is hiding assets or that they are not being transparent about the assets. Also, you have to be really careful when there's domestic violence because it needs to be a safe process. If there's domestic violence, there may be a lot of things that are not known or getting said that could put the abused partner at risk after they leave the room. I'm hoping that most people will never need to really listen to this podcast. But if you're sort of here because you're sort of divorce curious, but what you've heard us saying is making you a little less divorce curious, what do you think is the one thing that typically women can do differently? And what is the one thing you think men can do typically differently that would make a huge difference and would sort of back them out of this territory? Any thoughts? Well, I just want to say, first of all, when you mentioned you hope people will not need this podcast, when people ask me about the book I wrote, I say, well, I wrote this book, Gray Divorce, Everything You Need to Know About Later Life Breakups, and I hope you never need to read my book. I wrote a book I don't want people to have to read, but here you go. For women, now remember, these are generalities. I think what women need to know is men are not mind readers, and it is not fair or reasonable to expect your husband to know what you want and to feel resentful when you don't communicate it and you don't get it. So it's not just what you want, but why you want it as well, I think is also really important to explain not just the what, but the why. That could be important. But sometimes it's trivial things, you know, the stereotypical conversation. Well, okay, I'll tell you a story. When my son started dating, he and my mother and I were in the car coming from a meeting we were attending, and he had plans that night to take a girl to the movies. And he was on his phone in the backseat. I wasn't paying attention, but at the end of the call, he sighed and he said, I am in so much trouble. I said, what's the problem? He said, I asked her what movie she wants to go to tonight. And she said, you choose. And what I know she means is, I expect you to know what movie I want to go to. And if you don't know, and you take me to the wrong one, there are going to be huge consequences. Now, he said this is a teenager smart kid. And I laughed and I said to him, yeah, we do that about dinner too. (laughs) So I don't have to communicate why I want Chinese food as opposed to Mexican food, but I do need to communicate that I would really like to go for Chinese food tonight. But I think it might be helpful to communicate why it is so important for you that I can read your mind. I think that would be something that I would really like to know. You know, why is that so important? Help me out on this. Why do women want men to read their minds? Because we like to feel known. We like to feel that our men know us and see us and we don't have to tell them who we are or what we want. And that is just not realistic. 
So let's shift around to men. What do men do that it would be a really good idea to stop doing because it drives women to divorce? Well, we can piggyback that on what I just said about women not communicating. Oftentimes women don't communicate because when we say to our men, this is what I want, the men will either question it or they'll dismiss it or invalidate it. So it's really important for men to know they don't have to understand why we're asking something, why something is important to us as much as they have to understand that it is important to us. And to be able to hear and validate and not go into fix-it mode and try and solve a problem that doesn't exist. And if you are a man and you haven't heard my interview with Matthew Fry about the things that got him into the divorce courts, have a listen to it. Because just before we started talking, we discovered that that is possibly something that uh, Linda is going to get all her male clients to listen to because she thinks it uh, would be really helpful. And Andrew, I do also want to mention one thing. We have been talking about heteronormative relationships. I just want to be very clear that one of the reasons I wrote this book is because there was nothing out there that was culturally sensitive. A lot of these things we're talking about, the problems tend to be somewhat different among lesbian and gay marriages. And I address that in the book. There is also a lot of information about mixed orientation marriages. And this is one of the reasons couples divorce later in life. When a person comes out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, there are also different issues that come up in gray divorce among people of color. So I just want to make very clear that I am aware we've been talking about typically white, mixed gender, heterosexual marriage, but the book encompasses other types of marriage and divorce. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my Substack newsletter. I'd love my Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mix of relationship advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it will become a shared space, somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com, so please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes, as well as information about uh, Linda's book and the whole subject of discernment counselling and everything else about this programme. If you go to my website, which is www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you can find out how you can get involved in the programme. If you've got a dilemma that you'd like me and my guests to discuss, you'll find a form to send in there. And my thanks to someone who sent me in this letter. My boyfriend and I are in our late 20s, and he's broken up with me not once, but twice, in our two and a half years. 
I took him back the first time, but I'm not so sure this time around. At the moment, we're seeing each other for coffee or lunch and talking, but I remain deeply ambivalent. I feel I have a protective layer around my heart to stop me getting hurt again, but equally, it stops me from opening up and making fresh connections. Everything he told me about why he thought we were wrong for each other keeps playing over and over in my head, and it can feel like a doom script. However, he says this time it will be different. He wants to learn about himself, to understand why he blows hot and cold, and for us to go into therapy together. We've listened to your podcast on attachment styles and discussed it together. Over the past week or so, I have been overwhelmed with panic. It can be really scary. I'm not certain whether it's all the old pain from my childhood and these breakups coming up to the surface because he's taking me seriously and listening, or I'm starting to listen to my body and it's telling me to run. Help! So what were your thoughts, Linda? I had so many questions. I think the first question I have for the person who wrote the letter is when you're making a decision about whether to pursue this, what were all these differences? Are we talking about that you like rom-com movies and he likes horror movies? You like vanilla ice cream and he likes chocolate ice cream? Or are you talking about fundamental differences in values? Or are you talking about differences of things that you may be able to make some changes, but might not be able to maintain? So I think the question is, are your values aligned? Based on just the information I have in the letter, it sounds to me like each of them has their own stuff to work on. And before they make any decisions about couples counseling, it might benefit each of them to go do their own therapy for six months and work through some of their own attachment issues. And it sounds like the writer might have some trauma. And so an EMDR therapist could potentially be very helpful for her. And the other thing that was a bit of a red flag is he's saying he wants to work through these things together, but maybe she just didn't mention this. Did he say, and I'm going to go do my own therapy? Yeah, that's a very good question. I like the idea of the separate counselling, but my question would be, what do you say to your partner in that six months? Are we together? Are we apart? What are we in that time where we're looking at ourselves? Obviously, I'm not going to tell a client what to do, but I do like to talk about the advantages of taking that six-month space focusing on yourself. Because one of the questions I have for her is, what keeps drawing you back into a relationship with somebody who ultimately pushes you away? It is easier to work through that when you're not in the pattern. And they're young, they're not married. I would be giving different advice if it was a couple who had been married for a long time. When a couple is married, whenever possible, it's best to do marriage counseling in conjunction with individual therapy, or if you're cohabiting, or even if you've been together for a long time, but you're not talking about a long-term relationship. You're not talking about having 
children together. You're not talking about having commingled property, things like that. So for this particular person, I would say if you don't take this six months or whatever to figure out who you are, you may end up back in the same place. I think that often we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make a decision now. And even just waiting another couple of weeks can sometimes feel very different, that the pressure that we put under ourselves, that we've got to come up to a decision now, is often unhelpful. So my suspicion is I would like to know more about this panic. I would like the person to sort of write about it after she's felt the panic, you know, write down what the panic was about, what brought it up, how did it feel, where was it in your body, you know, what thoughts were coming up, so that you really understand the panic, because our natural response to panic is to get away from it as quickly as possible. And I think if you can sort of examine the panic, either on your own through journaling or with a therapist, you're going to begin to able to get the answer for yourself about whether it's actually old pain coming up or whether whether it's a reaction, you know, that this relationship is wrong for you. So my general suspicion is that you want to take longer making this decision. Don't give yourself that time pressure. And I think that Linda's idea of having some individual therapy sounds like a really good idea. And I think it's actually it will be really interesting because if your boyfriend isn't prepared to do the individual therapy himself, that might be your answer for you. Absolutely. And one of the thoughts that comes up, again, just based on a few sentences, so I don't want to be unfair and read into things, but I am wondering about fear of abandonment. That is a self-issue to work through. And so by taking that space and putting a pause on it, it gives you the opportunity to look for yourself, whether Am I in this relationship? Am I attracted to it because I'm afraid of being alone? Or am I pushing this person away when he's becoming vulnerable to me because I'm afraid that it will flip-flop and I'll end up alone? Or this could be a really good place to work through your abandonment issues with somebody if the two of you can talk about it together. And so this can all be done consciously rather than unconsciously. So, you know, that there are many, many differences. I think it's important for you, the two of you, to keep talking, but to not make too many decisions too quickly. I hope that's been helpful for you. So, Linda, I have to say thank you very much for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. And I have to turn the tables and ask you, what makes your life meaningful? I am going to get a bit Freudian on this one and say that what makes my life meaningful is to love and to work. My connections are the most important thing to me, my family I have very close, deep friendships that I treasure, and that is the most meaningful. And when I talk about work, yes, my job, hopefully, obviously, is very, very meaningful to me. And there is nothing that makes me feel better than when somebody comes back to me, when I get 
an email or I bump into a former client after a number of years and they say that work we did together was so helpful to me or I still think about this thing you told me and I take it with me always. But not just the work that earns the money, any kind of labor that produces something creative is meaningful to me. I have mad knitting skills. And so for me, it's meaningful to sit down and make a baby blanket for somebody I love who's having a baby or a chemo cap for somebody who's going through something. It could be growing vegetables and eating the bounty of your garden. So that's what I mean by work. Anything that feels like a labor of love. And also for me, travel is so meaningful. And that is one of the things, of course, that got put aside during the couple of years before vaccinations and the pandemic was raging. But to meet people from other cultures, to understand that there's a much bigger world And I want to experience it as much as I can. And traveling always gives me meaning. So this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you would like to hear the rest of our conversation, Linda's going to tell me the three things she knows deep down to be true. And I'm going to be discussing with her the seven positive signs for your relationship if you're in this, should I stay or should I go? So I'm going to discuss my seven positive signs and I'm going to see what Linda thinks of those. If you want to hear that, you can become a subscriber and a supporter by going to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast and find out how to become a Patreon supporter. Or if you listen on Apple, you can uh, subscribe directly there or the same on Spotify. You'll find a button to directly subscribe through that service. I do hope that you become a supporter and you can listen to the rest of the conversation. If you want some details about how to do all of that, here they come. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.